Um, Ed, listen, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. It was a complete random chance. I rang you last week, exactly one week ago, and I, I was leaving a voice message and suddenly there was a hello, hello. And I was like, hello. <laughs> and uh, we connected and um, you, you kindly agreed to do this podcast at such short notice. And I'm very, very grateful. Um, just so that some of my viewers and listeners, if they don't know who you are, um, you wrote uh, a quite well-known book amongst certain circles called The Creature from Jekyll Hyde. Um, sorry, Jekyll Island. And you wrote that back in the early 90s. And it was an eye-opener for me. Um, I started questioning the world after 9-11. And I really started questioning things in 2008 when I was living in London, central London, and I was watching the financial boom in the early 2000s and then this massive crash and then the bailouts. And I just thought, none of this makes sense. It's like they don't actually do anything in the city. They, they have a cake. They pass the cake around. They all take a slice of the cake and then it ends up at the end and there's no more cake except crumbs. And then they point fingers at the public and say it's their fault. I'm like, this this game that they're playing, they don't produce anything, they don't make anything, they just feed off us. And it just didn't make sense. But your book made sense. And one of the most shocking things was that how money is made. The fact the Federal Reserve that you think take for granted isn't federal and doesn't have a reserve. That things like income tax weren't normal over 100 years ago. So anyway, before... I carry on. No one really wants to hear me talking. Trust me. People want to hear you talking. I want to ask you, what made you realize what was going on? And then what motivated you and inspired you to write the book? Like, what was your waking up moment? Well, I wish I could uh, tell you something very dramatic, like the, like the uh, bell rang or the <laughs> explosion was heard or something like that. But uh, Nothing quite that dramatic. It was a series of little baby steps, little awakenings, little questions here and there. And they just gradually accumulated until the the weight and the momentum was just unbearable. I um, I started off, I'll skip through a lot of the old ancient history. I was, I was climbing the corporate ladder as a young man mm. after I got married and had a a beautiful wife and uh, one and a half children, the second one in the hatch. And uh, I thought I was going to go into Hollywood and, be and become active in the motion picture or communications business. I had worked in television and all that. I thought, well, I go, I'll go to Hollywood and, uh, and make my big splash there. Well, it was a big thud. And uh, I got out there and I realized there was a lot of talent much better than mine in Hollywood. And these people were all, waiting for their big chance. They were waiting table and washing cars and, and wasting their lives in a way. And then when they did get in, get their big chance, they found out that, uh, and I could see this from a distance, they found out that the whole system was corrupt and they didn't want to be part of it anyway. So um, I decided that I would uh, uh, get out of that field, that racket, and go into the corporate racket and uh, and just become a normal person and so I was climbing the corporate ladder, and I, I came across some pamphlets that shocked me. One pamphlet uh, was crit critical of the United Nations. 
Well, that was highly insulting to me because I had just come <laughs> out of the university and I had been taught and I knew that the United Nations was why it was our last best hope for peace. And it was a great humanitarian organization and so forth. So I was incensed. And I, I remember the day I thought I'd never go back to a library again once I was out of school because I thought those were torture chambers. And uh, But I decided to go to the library downtown in Los Angeles where their corporate office was to check out some of the things that had been said in this pamphlet, which was written by an obscure professor. I never heard of him before. <clears throat> he was teaching in a small Midwestern college here in the States. Anyway, it's not that's not important. I thought, this guy is full of baloney. He might be a professor, but he's he's all wrong. So I had some time on my hands, and I went to the library and checked out some books. And by golly, interestingly enough, all the books in there about the United Nations were written by people who were either part of the United Nations mm. or very, very friendly to the United Nations, because I don't think I, there were any exceptions. I think all of them were either on the payroll of the UN or they were on the payroll of some organization that was dependent upon the UN for its own livelihood and prestige. So I knew that there was a bias in, in the authorship of what I was reading. But in spite of that bias, I could see that it was pretty well twisted and uh, it was it was propaganda. I don't know why I had the ability to see it because I myself had been propagandized. But this was so blatant that it was they um, if they had just dialed it back a little bit, they might have fooled me. But they came on full blast with the propaganda. So anyway, I became incensed at that, and I decided this led to another thing, another discovery, and I finally decided, hey, the world isn't really what it was presented to me as a young person. I thought I was, you know, born into America. And these things, these bad things, these totalitarian systems, well, they may happen in other countries, other parts of the world, but not in America, you know, because this is the good old USA. We got the Constitution, our founding fathers, and oh, man, this is a free society. I never realized then, it took me many years really to fully realize it, that already that was a myth. America was no longer the, the land that we had been taught about the land that it once was it mm. had been gradually changed and nibbled away and the people that went into public office went in really for their own aggrandizement not not for the principles of the constitution or liberty but it was to fatten their own their own pockets and so forth i didn't realize any of that i didn't realize that wars were pretty much a scam and they weren't fought over what we thought they were fought over liberty and freedom was not the not the reason we went into World War II and so forth. I, mm. I didn't know all of that. I didn't realize that America and most Western countries had already been taken over in a sense, not in the old fashioned way, not in the old way where an enemy shows up in a uniform that's different than yours. And he's carrying rifles and his planes are dropping bombs. And the soldiers are marching and all of that. No, that's the old fashioned way that had gone out the window long ago. And I didn't know it. It was still done quite a bit to keep the public attention, but the new style of warfare was not from without, but from within. And it started pretty much really with the, I, I discovered all this later, started pretty much with the uh, the French Revolution. That's when, I guess uh, you might say that the means of communication has advanced far enough that they could they could create mass propaganda and the people became around the world incensed, or I shouldn't say burning with the idea that 
the people themselves, the population should be the masters of their own government. It was the we the people image, you know, and that government should derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that's when the idea of democracy came into into play. And from that point forward, all the would-be tyrants of history decided that the warfare had changed. Now you had to conquer with ideas. You had to make your, your victims or your, your future uh, subjects grateful for the fact that you had conquered them and make it impossible or difficult, at least, for them to realize that they had been conquered. So I, none of this I knew, but I was in that path of learning it. And when I finally the picture began to come into focus, I was still working for a large corporation, large insurance company. And uh, excuse me for coughing here. I'm not choked up with emotion. I just had a frog <laughs> in my throat. Um, <laughs> I um, I realized that uh, th- this uh, picture had changed and the future that I had planned for myself and my family was not going to happen. In fact, it was already beyond that. And I uh, I, I discovered that I had a crusader gene. I never knew before that, that I cared about anything other than my own family, my own immediate advantage. How am I looking? How much money am I making? Are we living in a good house? Should we get a new car? How about uh, a better car, a more fancy, you know, go someplace on our vacation. It was all about material things. And like mm. most young people, they were just determined how, how are we looking? How are we doing? And so forth. And all of a sudden I realized that that was, that was nothing. That was never going to happen. And it, we were heading into some tough times. So anyway, I discovered I had a crusader gene. And I decided I had to do something about it. Now, this is probably more than you needed to know on the answer to your simple question, how this started. But this is how it started, bit by bit, step by step, realizing that picture is bigger than I thought, more tragic than I thought, more serious, more more serious than I thought. So I quit my job with the corporation. My wife almost had a, a cow. I mean, she said, Ed, how are we going to put groceries on the table? I said, I don't know. We'll find out way somehow. So uh, naive though I was. So anyway, um, I'm I'm having similar conversations. By the way, I'm having similar conversations with my wife. <laughs> so, I, I, I'm sure. Well, the ladies are smart. You know, they can see things that us guys we we sometimes get all wrapped up in our pride and everything else, and our I think our 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 um, something about our psychological makeup. We just don't want to. We don't want to. Give in, you know, we're, we think we're, we're invincible. Anyway, be that as it may, the ladies usually are right on these things. But anyway, she followed me all the way through, and, uh, and uh, I'm glad she did. We went through some hard times, of course. But anyway, now, getting finally on track to your question. So once I made that step and I had to figure out how to make a living while I'm, I'm pursuing, my, pursuing my crusade for liberty, mm-hmm. um, I decided, well, I'll use the skills that I had learned in school and in my short career in television in Detroit, Michigan, and because um, I was working a large television station there. So I knew a little bit about, you know, modern technology and communications. So I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start making some little low budget documentary films on these topics so I can communicate these these ideas to as many people as possible. So that's what I started to do. Mm. It was a, a shoe, a shoehorn, a shoe shoelace operation. I, we didn't have any money. 
But I borrowed some money. We made a couple of little low-budget films or terrible little low-budget films, but the, the message was genuine. And uh, I decided at that stage I was going to do a documentary on mm-hmm. uh, inflation. I wasn't quite sure what inflation was caused by, but I was pretty sure it wasn't what we were told. Yeah. Nobody really had a good idea what caused inflation. Most of us just thought, well, it's just a natural phenomenon. It's like uh, trees growing and they get old and then they die and uh, or they grow and get bigger. Well, the national debt grows and it gets bigger like a tree. It's supposed to. You know, we didn't understand any of that. And uh, so I gathered a lot of material in uh, a banker box. I got all the books I could find on the topic that others had written. I found a lot of newspaper articles. I found some archival material. People would send me things from their own libraries that when they found out I was doing the research on it. And I collected a huge amount of research on on um, banking and money supply. I never did produce the film. It was just too big a topic for me. I thought, well, this is <laughs> I really picked picked something way beyond my scope because here I'm just a kid. All I know is a is a little bit about television and motion pictures and the insurance business. And I'm supposed to tackle what? the banking industry and and say this is wrong and tell them what what they're supposed to do where the I had I'm the last person in the world I thought to myself to take on a task like this I knew nothing about it when I started by the way since then and the years that have gone by I've talked I've become very good friends and talked with many people in the banking business and they've all said Ed that was an advantage that you didn't know anything about banking when you started because those of us that learned about it in school had to unlearn what we had been taught before we could finally figure it out. You didn't have to unlearn anything. It was hard enough to learn what was the truth, but you didn't have to unlearn the lies. It's but, the whoa, same it's, it's the same it's the same as a doctor going from med school. <laughs> you have to unlearn. Yeah, I've what discovered that, yeah. You have to mm. unlearn a lot, don't you? Mm. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, this is all the trail. The short version to your question answer to your question is that there was nothing very dramatic it was just little incremental discoveries along the way and each time i became more and more aware that what i had gotten into was extremely important and that we must not fail in solving this solution uh solving this problem finding solutions yeah so let's go back to let's go back to when you went and read about the u.n what was it that you saw mm-hmm. that made you think, no, this is wrong, this is a bad thing? You know, what is it that you found that questioned what you'd been indoctrinated and well, guys? <clears throat> Let me think. Anything. There were several things. Um, I became in that stage of my enlightenment, I became curious about this thing called communism. This was back in the 60s. And um, Americans in general were concerned about the growth of communism around the world. Communism had taken over Russia and China and Cuba, and and we had communists in our streets and everything. And wow, if we don't do something about communism, uh, we're in trouble because they might take over America. Well, so I decided to learn something about communism. So I went down to the communist bookstore in Los Angeles called the People's Bookshop. And I started to hang out with the comrades there. 
<laughs> and um, it was a strange combination because I'm in a business suit and a tie. I'm, you know, the business guy. And most of, not most, half of them at least, were sort of hippie types. You know, they were sort of uh, very casual people. And they were very suspicious of me at first. But then they thought, well, here's a guy. Maybe we can recruit him. And they they tried to recruit me and, and invited me to so-called uh, seminars or, edu- or study groups, as they called them. They were really recruiting funnels. I knew that. and uh, But I was interested. I wanted to learn. I mm. didn't really have any idea that I would become a communist, but I wanted to find out what is it that attracts these people to do such wild and, and hideous things and think that they were doing good. Mm. So um, I read all the books. And um, in the process of doing that research, I discovered that the United Nations was sponsored and promoted primarily by the United States State Department. And I discovered in my research that the people in the United States in the State Department, like Alger Hiss, who is the guy that's credited with overseeing the drafting of the UN Charter, was a communist agent. And I kept running into communists everywhere I looked in the story of the creation of the United Nations. All the key Hmm. positions, like the the ones in charge of the military. I've forgotten it's the something. uh, Anyway, Security Council has a branch similar to our Defense Department, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a very impressive name for it. And uh, every one of the every one of the first nine, I think it was seven or nine leaders of that division were all from communist countries. I thought, what the heck is going on here? So that was one of the bells that went off and made me realize that there were people in America who we thought America was anti-communist or resisting communism, were actually promoting communism, actually were communists themselves. Most of them were secret agents. They weren't telling anybody, but they were eventually discovered. So that's that got me started. And then uh, I thought, well, I'll start giving speeches on this topic. And I was doing research on United Nations activities. And, of course, one of their favorite... Um, facades is that they have a military force. They call them the peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting. They, it's not a, it's not an army. It's the peacekeepers. So they can they can fight a war or launch a war. They can attack us. They can attack a city and blow it up. But that's not an act of war. That's an act of peace. You see how they use words because the, the, the implication is they're always fighting the bad guys who want to start these terrible wars. And so all they do is go in and settle the issue and end the war by defeating the, the bad guys. So therefore, mm. they're the peacekeepers and not the warmongers. Well, mm. I got to looking at that, and I was shocked out of my wits and I, because I, I got deeply into the story of the first major U.N. peacekeeping operation that occurred in the Congo, and particularly in the province of Katanga. And the story just, it just rattled my understanding of reality to the rafters. Because here's basically what happened. Most Americans really don't, didn't know then what was going on and don't know now, probably don't even care. But it was was one of the things that woke me up. And that is that when the uh, when the Westerners moved out, I think it was Belgium that occupied Katanga, which was mm. a province of the giving independence to the Congo. Um, 
a lot of them um, moved out of the country because when the military left and the police left, there was no law and order left in the Congo. And uh, there were communist agitators at every level encouraging these poor people there that were destitute, never had anything. They were envious of the good things that other people had. And they recruited them into becoming literally marauders and pillagers and murderers. And they were, they whatever you steal from the settlers, it's yours. And the Congo was in, in, experiencing a terrible bloodbath. And the, the milita- military was gone. The Belgian people were gone. And, and so here, here was terrible. So the UN said, ah, we are the peacekeepers. So we'll go in and restore the peace. So the whole Congo was in chaos like that, except one province. And that was the province of Katanga. Katanga was under the leadership of uh, the president of Katanga. I think it was Moise Shambe. And um, Moise Shambe had, had uh, read all the Western works of the um, free market people, the free enterprise people. He understood free enterprise ideology. And the Katanga province was very, very prosperous. And um, so it was, in fact, it was, you hardly even knew that anything was going on in the Congo if you were in in the uh, Katanga province. So when the peacekeepers showed up, where do you suppose they went? Did they go where the chaos was? No. Mm. They all went to the Katanga province and they literally destroyed the leadership Moishambe and his government destroyed it because it was the only only island of of sanity and peace in the Congo. It had to be destroyed. And that's what the peacekeepers did in the name of restoring peace. They they created havoc in the only place where peace already existed. And so when I saw that story and I saw it written and described not only by the victims of it, but by the so-called peacekeepers themselves. Mm. One book written by uh, Connor Cruz O'Brien from Ireland, I believe, United Nations General. He was in charge of the peacekeeping operation, and he wrote a big fat book about his experiences there. And he bragged about what I'm just saying. It's, it's incredible. Some of the phrases which I found in his book were just, they were so blunt and, and true that it changed my life. He would say, he would say, for example, something like, well, when we were asked about were we interfering with the internal affairs of Katanga, we did what all people in government do. We lied. And just like that, He's, you have to lie in order to get good things done because people are too damn dumb. They don't understand. So you have to lie to the public. And I, I think, OK, all right, I get it. This is not what I learned in school. So you asked me what about the UN was those kinds of things that everywhere I looked and really dug into it myself, Mm -hmm. I found that it was corrupt top to bottom. So it had to be exposed. You know, my first book, by the way, the fearful master, a second look at the United nations. I think people who don't know need to understand that the Congo is actually the size of Western Europe. It's huge. And probably Katanga is is probably Katanga is probably the size of France or something. I mean, these, these, these provinces that we're talking about are massive. And I think the playbook mm-hmm. hasn't changed. The way that these corporations and globalists, you know, the neocolonialism is to create havoc and chaos so that you can go and rape the resources and the natural um, wealth of these places. 
they don't want law and order. They want chaos and destruction no. so they can go and pilfer those places. They're very, very sad. Can I ask you something? You mentioned about the French Revolution and that's when it's all started. My basic understanding as a kid is that the French royal family and the king were bad people. They were cruel to their population and the public and there was a uprising and the republic came into place and it was a good thing because the, 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 you know, people were starving and, and the, the nobility and the, the king were just evil. Is, is it not that simple? No, it's not that simple. And the, the reason it's not that simple, because much of what you just said was probably true, <clears throat> as far as I could tell. But mm. it, like so many, and like so many uh, narratives, there are no good guys. <laughs> it's just one tyrant <laughs> with one tyrant describing his opponent. So the other tyrant is described as a tyrant. And the first tyrant that's going to overthrow the second tyrant is described as the hero and the good guy. <laughs> and in most cases, there are no good guys in these things. Uh, so that's the problem with much of history. It's always the st story of history is always written by the winners. And sadly, sounds like the winners are never the good guys. They're just another form of bad guys. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty rare. I, now, it sounds like I'm tooting the USA horn, but I really do believe uh, uh, that the the American Republic, correctly described as that, was was a major change in that trend because people like George Washington and Adams and Hamilton and all the others, they were they were expected to become the new royalty. In fact, mm. everybody thought, well, now that the Americans that had won the Revolutionary War, that uh, George Washington would become the king of the United mm. States. They wanted a king. Everybody mm. had a king, right? And mm. they deliberately rejected nobility and and that kind of thing. And he said, no, no, no kings in this country. The first time ever, in, to my knowledge, in history, that the winners of a, of a conflict like that didn't choose to pick up the, the, um, uh, the benefits of victory and become themselves the new the new regime and that was that was really quite different in the american revolution they they wrote a constitution to prevent that kind of thing from happening well it didn't last but it was a pretty good beta model and i i salute them for trying and uh, and we learned a lot from that experiment they called it an experiment and it's exactly what it was you say it doesn't la it didn't last people i mean people People believe that it, it is lasting. What are you talking about? There, you know, the constitution's there, alive and kicking. It's amazing. But why? Why do you think it didn't last? And when did it not? When did it all end? And I really want to. While we're talking about the the War of Independence and the Constitution, I want to come back to you know when the first Bank of America came about and the second Bank of America, because that will then tie in with the third Bank of America, the Federal Reserve, and. You know, great people like Andrew Jackson were warning the people about the dangers of this. Um, and I really want to talk about some of that and then eventually talk about, you know, how is money made? You know, it's funny, you're talking about people who work in the finance industry. You know, I know quite a lot of people who worked in, in the banking sector. And I was shocked at how they didn't know where money came from and how it was made and what fiat money was. They're bankers and they didn't understand any of this. They were just dealing with bonds and yields and God knows what else. But they didn't understand this basic stuff. So let's go back. Let's go back to the Republic. 
why was it an experiment that didn't that hasn't lasted to this day when did it all fall apart well i think the the best way to start with an answer on that is to be clear on what the word republic means mm. it's a, it's a word that most people really don't understand except that it's it's uh, said with a certain amount of reverence and it's supposed to be good and it is but why it's good most people have no idea probably and, me uh, included well and, and one of the problems is that there's no to my knowledge there's no clear universally accepted definition of the word republic because there are republics uh, originally the republic the republics all started with Greece and Rome and the first mm. republic was uh, you know way 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 back and somebody just gave it the word republic and then well what does it mean well it's it's changed and evolved over the period of time now we got the people's republic of china for example it's not the same kind of republic as um, the republic of the united states for example was now unfortunately the republic of the united states is more and more like the republic of the people's republic of china so Okay, the real question is what is or what should be the definition of a republic? And in my view, it's simply it's a, it's a concept of the state. Um, now I say the state, I have to back up one more step because I I do not like to use the word governments to describe what we're talking about. Mm. Because once we use the word government to describe something, we have already adulterated what it is. Because what is the purpose of a government? And the answer is, is to govern. Well, wait a minute. Is who wants to be governed? I don't know anybody that wants government in, in that, that sense of the word. So we say, what kind of a government do we have? You've already lost the debate because you've you yielded on the fact that the state is supposed to govern you. Well, no, no, no. Mm. The republic is not govern people. That's, let's start with that. A republic is... A republic, and then there are governments, which are the opposite of republics. So what is a republic? Well, all states are merely agreements by the founders or the participants in creating the state. They're, they're agreements between each other that they will abide by certain rules, and they'll all support each other in that. And the rules all pertain to the legalized use of force, legalized use of coercion for the betterment of those living in that society. And um, so the idea is that the, this, is, this is extremely important. So excuse me if I, if I slow way down on it, because it applies no, no, to us take, very much Take your today. time. Take your time. All right. It's extremely important to get this straight. Um, all state charters or constitutions, whatever you want to call them, are merely the written documents expressing the agreement between the founders of that unit of when and to what extent delegates of these people can use coercion against other people, even even uh, even deadly coercion. They can use weapons, they use guns, bombs. Under what conditions is it okay to kill somebody? These are, it's a very important issue. If you're going to say, I can't guard my house 24 hours a day. I want to hire somebody to do it for me while I go and do my work. I want a security force. And when you set, you hire this security force and you better sit down and make it very clear. What is the limit that you're of authority that you're giving them to use lethal force to kill people? And, uh, 
So it comes to the question of, well, if, if the state derives its just powers with, from the consent of the governed, then the question is, well, what can individuals do that everybody would agree to, to use lethal force against another person? What, on what basis would you or I be justified in killing somebody, for example, or incarcerating them or, or taking away their liberty or whatever? Any, any lethal or coercion, any lethal force or coercion, what would it be? Well, to defend yourself, of course. Nobody would or very few people would criticize someone if they killed another person who was trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. It was for their own self-defense. So there's one right there. Now, there are a few people who say, no, you should let them kill you and you, sh- you shouldn't resist. They're really true pacifists. And there are some people like that. But most people are not. And if you had to kill somebody, God help you, help us. You would never have to do that. But if you had to, nobody would blame you for doing it. So you mm. can use lethal force in the defense of your life. And how about your liberty? What if somebody's trying to enslave you? Ah, there's another one. Nobody would blame you to use force in the defense of your life and your liberty. Mm-hmm. Anything else? No. There's nothing else that the individual can claim the right, the, the moral, ethical right to take the life of another person or take their liberty, take, to enslave them, put them in prison or whatever you want to call it, um, unless it's in the defense of their life or their liberty. Nothing more. Now, if that's the only thing that you and I can use force for, those are the only things that we can delegate to the state to use force for. And that's it. Nothing more. Just because there are three of us against two doesn't mean, well, we can use lethal force against this person because we want to. um, We don't like people like him, so we're going to kill him. We don't like his ideas. That's not going to work. We don't have the authority to do that, the moral authority. So we cannot vote for somebody in office and say, you have the authority to do it for us. And that is now the core of a republic. Republic is an agreement of social order that limits the right to use coercion to the negative defensive force to protect life and liberty. Nothing more. Now, that basically is what was written into the Constitution of the United States, but was never defined clearly as such. It was sort of almost accidental. The idea was there, but never codified. So it doesn't show up in so many words like I just described it. It was the idea that the, that the, uh, the rights of the individual must be protected against the mob, that Democracy, for example, majority rule. We have democracy in America today. Unfortunately, most countries do. If you win the election, you get over 51% of the vote. You can do anything you want to the, to the other minority because you won the election. It's a question of numbers. That's not a republic. That's a democracy. So what is a republic? A system of rule of, of social order in which the rights of the individual are protected against the passion of the mob, of the majority, that individuals have rights that must be protected by the state, no matter if it's just one person against everybody else. 
You have the right to freedom of trial or whatever, the freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. If you're the only person that has that religion, it doesn't make any difference. It's not a question of numbers. So the idea then of a republic is very simple. It's the protection of the rights of the individual against the majority. And it's the idea that the state can use coercion only in the defense of life and liberty and nothing more. It's a fantastic concept. And it's the kind of concept we have to nourish and develop and understand better because the future, if we want to avoid always reverting back to one tyranny being replaced by another tyranny, one bad guy calling the other guy a bad guy, and he, he himself becomes the hero because he got rid of a bad guy, but he's, he's worse than the other guy. You know how that works. History is, is loaded with that. If we want to get out of that rut and not repeat it over and over and over again, we've got to have a better understanding of and reverence for this thing called a republic. It's very, very important. That's, that was a really deeply profound explanation and i'm really glad you took the time to explain it because it's educated me and hopefully a lot of listeners ed i'm going to sidetrack well, for a there's second another element to that since we're in it we maybe we'll go the final step is what's this thing called property because mostly when people talk about the value of life and liberty they say life liberty and property and that's a, a little bit of a causes a, a huge question mark to pop up because what pro- what does that mean? All property? And, and why is property so important that you could kill? You're going to kill somebody because they stole your pencil? Mm. Wasn't your pencil your property? Mm. No. Well, let's, we need to look at that a little bit. This was a hard thing for me to get my brain around for the longest time. And finally, I realized, oh, of course, there are two kinds of property. There's property of Convenience, like a pencil, is convenient. It could be very convenient, like even your car or a bicycle or something. Very, very convenient. But is it? Are you justified to kill somebody in order to prevent them from stealing your your bicycle or your your shoes or your book or whatever? And the answer, I I theorized at least, depends on. The purpose of the property. If the property is essential for your life and your liberty, we're really talking about life and liberty. Mm. In other words, if if you, in order to defend your life, you need a weapon, then that weapon is, you can kill for that. Because if you don't have the weapon, you're probably going to lose your life and or you're first you're going to lose your your liberty and then your life perhaps so there are certain types of property that are essential for your life and liberty and those are the kinds of property that people usually are referring to when they're talking about life liberty and property and it's important to get that distinction your home your 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 tools for your employment your um what other kind of property? Well, your tools and your home, your food supply, your water. You need water to live. You uh, There have been wars fought over water. Well, not necessarily so that they could live themselves, but so they could raise cattle, and that's their livelihood and so forth. So you, you get into that area. A lot of, in the early days of the Wild West, there were wars that were fought between regions over who gets the right to the water that's coming through the land. And... Mm. Uh, it was a question of life and death for these people. 
So that's why water can become that kind of property and land and and uh, resources, timber, and you know whatever whatever it is that people need to to secure their life and their liberty is what I would call essential property as opposed to convenience property. So that's my little addition to this idea. And I'm sure there are people with better minds than mine that can say it better or maybe find some fault with it. But to me, it looks like it's airtight. I'm I'm with the airtight. (laughs) I'm with the airtight. Ed, can I I ask? That's two of us now. (laughs) So, I I have been thinking about this and I've been thinking about humanity and people and yes on one aspect you know we have progressed and we've got this we're communicating half a world apart and we've got phones smartphones and TVs and cars and planes and whatnot but in some respects humans haven't really progressed from a philosophical point of view, from an intellectual intellectual point of view, from a cultural point of view, and from from the basic flaws that I see in amongst human beings, we 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 will happily walk by someone on the pavement who's been injured or assaulted. You know, we won't re- reach out to help them. Most people won't. They will just quickly walk by and ignore. Most people will go along with the herd. Most people will not stand out on their own and speak the truth. They'd rather live a lie amongst the herd. Um, most people don't really want to take responsibility. They abdicate their, their power and responsibility to other people who have no interest in their well-being. They vote for people based on their looks and their smile and their teeth, for God's sake not on their values and their characters. I mean, we're flawed. We're materialistic. We're looking for instant gratification. We've lost our sense of place in this universe and our spirituality. And the problem is that these flaws amongst the many are well understood by the few. And I think of them as sociopaths and psychopaths, this malignant layer of humanity who knows how the vast majority of people tick and how they can pull the levers and exploit their weaknesses, which I've just talked about. So unless there's some kind of sociopath mitigation process, nothing's going to change. They seem to have because of you know what you talk about in your book, an unlimited amount of money and resources that they can just buy everything they want, the media, the politicians, whatever, um, nothing changes. It's just same, same. Is, is this right? <laughs> or have I got it wrong? No, I think you've stated the status quo pretty well, but I would uh, like to add something to it. Uh, it's do. not that anything you said was incorrect, but I think there's another element to it that uh, needs to be considered. And that is that the majority doesn't need to change because history is always written by the few. History, every major event of history has been driven by my analysis is that about 1% of the population are the thought leaders, Mm. and they gather around them 
3% of the population, which is, let's call them the influencers, communicators, prominent people. And they attract around them 15% of the population who are the supporters, the good people that will support them and even show up if necessary to defend them. And that's about it, 15%. At the other end of the spectrum, if there's any conflict, there's another 15%, which is driven by by 3%, led by 1%. And the 70% in the middle are who we're talking about. They haven't any idea what's going on and couldn't really care less. The, I, excuse me for always talking about the American Revolution. That's, that's closer to home for me, and I've studied it a lot. And I was shocked to find out some time ago that most of the people it, during the revolution didn't support the revolution. They didn't mm. oppose it, but they didn't support it. They were <clears> that 70% in the middle. They were waiting to see who was going to win. And um, some of them left the country, went to Canada because they didn't want to take two sides. But the 15% won the war, led by the 3%, led by the 1%. And it's true all across history. So when we're thinking in terms of winning this battle and making a difference for the future for our children and our grandchildren, we don't need that 70%. Uh, now, we cannot have them actively against us. And that's why our enemies always worry about manipulating them because they need that that mass motion. But the people themselves in that group are very vulnerable. They could change their position in a heartbeat if they thought, oh, well, the other side is winning. Mm. It always happens that way. That they, We call them the, you know, the rodents leaving the ship as the ship is sinking or going to shore on the ropes because they know that ship is going down. So it's a harsh reality, but it's true that all we, if we want to win this battle, all we need to do is reach 15% of the population. And I think we've already done that. The only trouble is that the 15%, they don't realize that they're in 15% or maybe, maybe 20%. They think they're all alone because our enemies have captured control of the means of communication. And so we, we don't talk to each other as much as we would otherwise. We don't read about each other's activities in the news. That's all, all forbidden. We don't, don't even know these people exist. But our job is to, is to strand, stand firm, never give up, always move forward, have a strategy, be diligent, be honest, have courage, and we will attract the 15%, and we can win if we develop a strategy and know how to win. You know, there are certain things that have to be done. You can't just say, well, we understand it, and therefore the enemy goes away. No, we have mm. to engage him in conflict. Now, this is not necessarily conflict in the streets with guns and bayonets. It's, mm. conflicts, it's conflict in the, in the um, power centers of society, the political parties, the church organizations, the, you know, the labor unions, where people live and, and gather and they follow leaders. That's why our enemies always go for the top of an organization. They can buy the leadership with money and the leaders can betray their members and the members don't know they're being betrayed. They just follow along because they're the followers and they're the leaders. So mm -hmm. you can lead the population with, you know, a couple of percent of the population, a couple of if they're in positions of leadership in the power centers of society. So now I'm getting a little bit outside of the topic, but our plan to recapture control of the system is to recapture control of the power centers of society, which can be done. 
it's, it's, it's just a, our enemy has done it. Now it's true. The enemy has unlimited funds. They make they have plenty of money because they make the bloody stuff. They they make it out of nothing. But we have something they don't have, and they wish they did. And that is, we have the bodies, the souls, the people, and we have the passion. Most of the people on the other side will work because of greed, or because of anticipation of having great wealth or prestige or power. Mm. But it's not in their heart. It's not in their heart like ours. We're fighting for our lives, for our families, our children, our liberty. We Hell have yeah. ideals. That is powerful, more powerful, far more powerful than money. And the other side does not have it. So we should take take courage in that fact and and move forward. 100%. Oh, my goodness. Ed, I don't really want to talk about me, but, you know, I, I, I as a consultant orthopedic surgeon, you know, I can make a comfortable living and live a good life. And I'm risking everything to do this to inform and educate as many people as possible, to em empower them and to wake them up to what is happening, to, to start linking mm -hmm. people. So many doctors and scientists have been censored and their voices been muted. People go, where are all the doctors? They're amazing doctors. There's so many good doctors out there. You know, Dr. Liz Evans, Dr. Claire Craig, Dr. Jonathan Engler, and so many more scientists. Wonderful people, Professor Norman Fenton, Martin Neal, people who were coming up with statistics and data showing the lies that were happening, but they've all been censored. And one of the reasons why I created this podcast was I'm, I was tired of the legacy media, the media that was clearly bought, that was just acting like a shill for Big Pharma and the companies and the who and whatever. They were not telling us the truth. They were telling us propaganda. So, you know, I put everything on the line because I have got that passion. I, you know, I can't sleep at night knowing all this rubbish that's going on. I want a better future for my family and my children and well, my fellow man. Well, you see, well, you see, you, you've got that crusader gene I was talking about. And if you've got it, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just part of you. And thank God there are people like you, but also thank God it only takes, well, 3% of the population and the other, the 15% maybe are not willing to risk their careers and everything like you are. And I am, but they'll, they'll help you and they'll be at your side when you need them. And this is, this is the reality. This, this is part of the, um, uh, the arcane knowledge of, of political engineering opinions and so forth. As you said correctly, our opponents know that, that art very well, that science very well. They've studied it. They have courses on it now in universities. And uh, sometimes it's described fictitiously as advertising, but it's really, it's opinion engineering. And uh, it's humanity engineering. It's changing the culture, all of that. It's really, really totally, totally serious and very big. But anyway, they understand it. You understand it. I think I understand it. And so, the 70 percent, let's not worry too much about them. We we want mm. to reach out to them. We love those people. I mean, we're all in the same boat. If the ship goes down, we go down with it. So we can't just say, ah, foo on, on these people because <laughs> we need them and they need us, whether we like it or not. So that's our mission. And, and often there are family and our loved ones, even though they might think yes. we're crazy and we're not 
you know, why don't we just play along? Um, you know, we can't just abandon them. Anyway, Ed, you were talking about they make money out of nothing. I know what you're talking about. A lot of people will be saying, what is this guy talking about? Money's not made out of nothing. There's no alchemy going on here. You know, money is money. What do you mean by money is made out of nothing? Okay. Let's start with what is money? What is money? Forget how it's made or anything like what is money? The, the dictionary defines money. Different dictionaries have different ways of saying it, but boils down to this. Money is a medium of exchange. Period. It's something that notice the word medium. It's not mm. the exchange. If it's direct exchange, one thing for the other is called barter. I, I'll swap my Model T car for your grand piano. That's uh, <laughs> or my apple for your orange. Uh, that's barter. That's not money. Now, if I say I'm going to give you my um, package of cigarettes, uh, I don't smoke, and I know you probably don't either. But let's just <laughs> no. I'll give you my my little bag of chocolate covered peanut butter cups in return for. Uh, your watermelon. Okay. Yeah. You don't like chocolate covered peanut butter cups. So you, you say, what would I do with chocolate covered peanut butter cups? But you know that almost everybody in the world does like chocolate covered peanut butter cups. So you might take the peanut butter cups anyway, because now it becomes a medium of exchange. You could swap it because there's a great demand for chocolate covered peanut butter cups. And uh, it not sound silly, but it's important to understand that money yeah. is really a medium of exchange. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily useful in – well, that's another – one of the things that makes some money better than others is the fact that the medium itself has a use other than money. Mm. And so that even if you don't want it or can't use it, it has a use that everybody recognizes, which is mm -hmm. why metals – always traditionally come to the surface when you are looking for a, a long-term medium of exchange. It's always been copper or even in the beginning was iron. People needed steel and iron because of why? Weapons. Mm. There's the essential property. They needed steel for swords and shields and mm. knives because if you didn't have those, you, you lost everything, including your life in many cases. Mm -hmm. So, the first earliest form of very common and sheep, uh, all livestock, but it's particularly cows. In fact, the the word pecunia is Latin, and pecunia, I understand, means cow. So a pecuniary transaction, meaning a monetary transaction, is a transaction of cows, if you follow the Latin origin of wow. it. Wow. So, um, yeah. so, so it's okay. We covered that. So money is anything that is a medium of exchange. Well, and the best money is that thing that has some value for something else in, in addition to being a medium of exchange. And the greater value it has for something else is the value it has as a medium of exchange. In other words, its, its demand, its usefulness is dependent upon its ability to be used for something else. Hence, always where people are left alone to do this on the basis of trial and error, they always wind up with silver and gold as the most valuable form of money. Mm. Now, there are other forms of medium of exchange, like, let's say, um, national, national currency, like the U.S. dollar or the pound or something, uh, little pieces of paper. 
Okay, that's a medium of exchange. It's money. But is it good money? The question is, well, what can it be used for other than the medium of exchange? And the answer is uh, two things. One is to uh, heat your home if you burn it. And you're looking for something to burn. So it has heat value. And the other thing is if you run out of toilet paper, it might be useful for that. Other than that, it, it, this has no, Ed, Ed, no value other than I, money. I, I hate to disappoint you. If if you used it now for toilet paper, you'd you'd slice your bottom open. I mean, they're made out of plastic now. <laughs> you, oh, so it's plastic now. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, there, oh well, okay. It's even worse now. It only has one use, and that's fuel. <laughs> I I don't think I don't so anyway, think you'd you even yeah you you don't even want to burn it actually. <laughs> it's just it's got no value. No. Well, probably the the ink would the fumes would be toxic. I'm sure, but uh, anyway, you get the point. So yeah. In, in times of war, I, I remember reading about this in World War II. I was just a little bit too young to be in that war, but I was alive and I, I saw it ha- happen before my eyes. And uh, I understand that uh, the soldiers would use cigarettes and and candy and anything like that in in money in the war torn areas because. You know, anything to eat or anything luxurious is so short in demand that I said, if you if a GI soldier had a brand new pair of silk stockings over in Germany or France during the havoc of war, well, that would be like having a Mercedes or something because you could uh, exchange silk stockings or or cigarettes or candy or something had great value as a medium of exchange. Okay, so. So we start with what? what is this thing, money? And why do we say money is made out of nothing? It's because in the world today, there is no, in, no money or very little of it that is, has intrinsic value of any kind. It's just, it's just pieces of paper. And um, the reason it's useful as money is because people accept it. And why do they accept it? Well, most people accept it because they never think about it. Everybody else is accepting it, so it's just customary. You accept it. And the other reason is that there are laws that force you to accept it if you change your mind. They're called legal tender laws. You have to use accept that money in the payment of public debts and taxes and that kind of thing. So you are required by law to use something that's totally worthless as though it had worth. Take the law away from it and nobody would, or very few people would accept it. So, um, why do we say that they make money out of nothing? Well, mm. most money in circulation today is not even paper. It's digital. I think that the last time I looked at the numbers, I think the amount of money in circulation that exists in terms of paper bills and coin is less than 7% of the total money supply. Way less. I don't know. Just get my phone off to the side there. Sorry about that. Way less than 7%. Yeah. And um, so the rest is all digital. It doesn't even exist except as an electric uh, charge or magnetic uh, impression on some credit card or something. So um, that's the nothing. That's the nothing part of money. And they make it out of nothing. But now it's even worse than that because in order for them to do that, 
all of the central banks of the world have to go through the motion of lending this nothing into circulation. That's how it gets into circulation. It's not really in circulation and therefore not really money until it's lent. So how money comes into being today is that the central banks lend it to somebody, either to governments or to some corporation or to some individual. And at that point, it's an IOU. So it's even worse than nothing. It's debt. Money is debt today. So it's it's accurate to say it's made out of nothing because it has nothing of substance behind it, except the taxing power of the state. Uh, it's been, I remember saying this some years ago that it just hit my, my brain as I was talking to a group of people. So well, what do they mean by this money is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States of America? Makes it sound so good. You can trust this money because it's, it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States of America. And you mm. hear a star-spangled banner playing in the background. <clears throat> what does that mean? That means this, this money is backed by the promise of the United States government, promise faithfully to fulfill this promise that in order to pay it back, they will take it from you if it's the last penny you've got so they can give it back to you. They promise to do that. And that's what the full faith and credit of the United States government means. They've got to steal it from you before they can give it back to you. They steal it in the form of taxes or inflation or some other mechanism. But it's, it's all propaganda. That word keeps coming up in our discussion over and over again. It's all warfare for the mind. It's convincing people to be, to be complacent, to be passive, to be compliant to the system, even though they don't understand it, is because they have faith in the system. So mm. they've been conquered in their mind and not conquered by guns and bayonets. 100%. Propaganda is a good word, though. It's really annoying when I think about the fact that I took out a mortgage and the bank gave me money that didn't even exist. And now I'm paying back that money that didn't exist until I took the loan out, which was never theirs, and I have to pay interest on it. And that took and not me only a that, if you don't pay it, Not only that, if you don't pay it, they take your property. I know. They take your house. And nowadays, what is even property? Because in, I think over here in this country, you never really own the land. The land is owned by the king or queen or wherever. And, um, and yeah. if you don't pay your oh. taxes on the land and the council tax, they'll take it off you. They just take, 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 take whatever you have. It's not like it's yours mm. and your family's. Um, I mean, the whole game is rigged, you know, from, from the moment you start working and earning and paying tax, tax and everything, income tax, council tax, fuel tax, VAT tax, everything, everything, savings tax and savings tax and profits tax and whatever you do, then you, you, you retire, you have a pension, you still pay tax on that the money you scrolled away. Then you pay tax when you die is tax on inheritance. I mean, I just feel like the game is rigged. No matter what you do, you're just paying most of what you earn back into the system, into the banks, into the government. Um, it's very difficult. The game is definitely feels well, rigged. It definitely is rigged, and that's uh, that's the reality. That's uh, that. Those are the things that I woke up to very gradually over a period of time, and uh, I kept. Uh, discovering that the rabbit hole goes deeper and deeper than I ever dreamed. 
And it's been that way for a long time. It's been that way for centuries. So when you say centuries, you know, and French Revolution and the banks, you know, I, I think around 1800s, early 1800s is when it all came to to fruition. And the American founding fathers t- tried to keep their arm's length from it all and didn't want the, you know, the European bankers to take over the, the American bank. Does it go further back? I mean, how far back does it go? Does it go back into the Egyptian era, the Babylonian? I mean, how far back are we talking about? Well, I was able to trace it back to uh, to the Netherlands. I think banking, in in some way, you could say that banking matured. I don't really know the the number, the year dates on it, but it was prior, yeah, prior to the Bank of England for certain. Oh my gosh, my wife is trying to call me. She's not going to let go. She's calling me, me on I can, all these phones. Hang on there. I can, I can pause. I can pause. Can, I can pause. All right. Right. Over to you, Ed. Yeah. So it's uh, hard to say when banking really began because it started, I'm sure, with just people taking their gold and silver uh, to jewelers and having the jeweler guard them in their vaults and their use their guards to, to provide a vault in a sense, you know, s- security for your private hoard of gold and silver if you had any mm. and um, charging a fee for, for for guarding it that was the origin of banking a very simple and logical situation but it soon developed into a system where you could loan that money out while you were guarding it and then you could loan it at interest and then you could loan more than you actually had because you were issuing paper receipts for it rather than the actual gold itself. So if you can issue paper receipt for a gold coin, well, you can issue an unlimited number of paper receipts for the same gold coin. And who's to know the difference until they come to collect the gold coin? Mm. And bingo, you have a run in the bank. So that's that's how banking started. It started very slowly and very logically. And it just revved up to the point where people in the business saw the possibility for fraudulent bookkeeping in a sense and they call that fractional reserve banking and it just matured and developed over the centuries by the time it came to the rothschilds in england and the bank of england it was pretty well refined uh, in every detail and uh, it's a fascinating story i got into it i never realized sorry what time are we talking about now what time frame well i I knew you were going to ask me the dates on it. I'd have to look roughly, it up. Roughly, roughly. It's in my book, by the way. Uh, but I would hesitate to give you a date off the top of my head because I don't remember the exact dates. But in, in those, there was the only time in history where banking was really honest. It was a short period of time in history and in one one place only. And um, and by the, when I say honest, they... They offered their services to secure your deposits of gold and silver bullion or other or coins, and they would put them in the vault and they would charge you a fee for insuring them and guarding them. And they would guarantee to give it back to you when you produce the receipt. It was, it was receipt money, very good money, as long as you didn't lose the receipt or have it burned or stolen or something. So that's the problem with all um deposit money you never know that who's guarding your money is going to be successful in guarding it but um, it's worth the risk because uh, you figure they have a good chance of doing so and you have a small chance of doing so and uh, the, the fee is reasonable so now you've got a bank uh, 
and then the the um, the old old timers die and the young ones come in they go to college and they take courses on how to perfect the scam and first thing you know you've got a really complex banking system that everybody says ah oh, this is too difficult for me to understand and they just walk away and hope that it all works out well and it doesn't when when we look at america can we talk about the federal reserve why is it not a government organization because a lot of i have a lot of family in america and they think i'm crazy when i say that they they believe that it's a, a government institution why is it not the case mm-hmm. well i did too i think everybody believes that and it's there's no reason for them not to believe it because it's offered as that it's seldom if you really look at the literature the the bank or the so-called bank. The Federal Reserve System is not a bank, let's call Let's first identify what it is. Federal Reserve System is not a bank. It's a cartel of banks. It's an organization <laughs> like a labor union or an association, an association of companies all in the same business, like the, uh, like the oil cartel or the banana cartel. The sugar cartel, it happens to be a banking cartel made up of all the major banks in the United States. They formed an association and they called themselves the Federal Reserve System. And um, they chose those words very carefully because they wanted to create the impression that it was a government agency. That was the reason for the word federal. And they liked to impress people with the idea that there were reserves involved in some 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 way that there were reserves involved in this system. And of course, there are no reserves of any substance. They're very token type reserves. They're just, there are a lot of medium-sized companies that could come up with the money to put on deposit for their reserves. And uh, they're not really reserves for banking at all. It's just, they put some money into the till. And um, anyway, it's it's a cartel. And, and I don't know what to say to, to your friends in the States, except they better look it up. Look it up in the uh, even Wikipedia will be pretty straightforward on it or read my book because the Federal Reserve Act created the uh, Federal Reserve System. And it's all very clear in the Federal Reserve Act that they were putting together something which was to be regulated by the federal government, but not part of the federal government. It turns out after a period of years that this thing is so powerful and so influential that it no longer is regulated by the government. But itself regulates the government. So it's completely switched around as to where the power center lies. Ed, can we just talk about, like, why, why is this not a good thing? So is it not, can there, is there an alternative? Because it seems like in the American history, certainly in the 1800s, there was a, a, a very long stretch of period where you didn't have a private bank. You had two attempts at private banks, which were overturned. But there's times when you actually had a government-owned bank and it issued its own currency. Why is that better for a country? Why is that better for a nation than having a private bank issue money with debt? I'm not sure it is better. I think it's just different. I think the... The problem is not who issues the money. And by the way, the, the governments that issued the money 
during this period that you're talking about were state governments. And they didn't, in most cases, issue the money either. They regulated private banks in their territory, and the banks issued banknotes. And so it was a mixed bag. Some of it uh, was government-issued state money, and much of it was privately-issued banknotes. And they circulated mm. side by side. And they didn't all circulate at par because some of them had better reputations than others. So right. it was a, a, a very confusing monetary system. Lots of banknotes floating around and lots of fraud. And the, the problems were the same, except mm. they were diffused over many states and over many banks. And all that really happened when the Federal Reserve System was created was to consolidate that fraud so that no longer was diffused over many subunits, but now it was all brought into one. So what would and the idea the- was that, well, if they, just, if they just had enough money and it was large enough, they could ride, ride the waves better if they just had larger cushions, so, so to speak. But they forgot that they it wasn't not only larger cushions, but larger waves as well. So uh, it just got worse instead of better. So, so what, what would be the alternative? What would be the alternative? What would be the ideal situation? If tomorrow we could get rid of the Federal Reserve and all these private central banks that issued debt and the fiat system and fractional reserve, which is just in case people don't realize, it's where if a bank holds five pounds, five dollars in its savings account, it issues loans, multiple value to that to lots of different people, five times five pounds, money that it doesn't have. Sometimes it issues debt, you know, which is 95 times bigger than what it's holding, if not more. Um, so that's where the, that's yeah, the fractional that's reserve system. So what would be the alternative system that would be better than where we are right now um, yeah well i like that question because i it shocks people when i when i tell people that i i'm not against banks i'm just against banks that have been become criminal institutions when banks could and should serve a real a real purpose for society and for the market i think banks should should be allowed not to allow to exist. Well, who are we to allow something to exist? You know, the idea that we're a king. No, banks should exist if they want to exist, so long as they keep their promises and don't have and are not practicing um, unethical um, banking practices, like lending more money that, than they have and mm. pretending like they've got it. And they, they call those demand deposits. You you put your money in our bank, and we we call it a demand deposit. You demand it, and we give it to you. Well, when in fact, they should be called time deposits. And there are time deposits, but most people don't know about them. And there are time limits. that you want your money back? They say, well, remember, we told you we'd be loaning this money out. So we can't necessarily give you your money back right now. But according to our agreement, we have 90 days or 60 days to do it. And we'll do it then. So anyway, that would be more honest banking than what we now have with fractional reserve banking. And the banks tend to conceal this information from their depositors. So if everything were transparent, and if the bank wants to issue a bank note that has nothing behind it, I think they should be free to do so, as long as everybody knows that there's nothing behind it. And they mm. don't lie about it and say, well, it's, it's guaranteed or in some other way, don't, you don't have to worry about it. If, we, if everybody knew that there was nothing behind it, 
not many people would be using it. So fraud can exist in banking only when there's deceit and people do not realize there's fraud. So if banking was required to be honest like any other business and keep its word and keep its contracts, I'm all for it. And uh, let's let's take another look at this. When a bank takes takes a lien on your property, let's say on your on your house. You've got a house which in the market might sell for $300,000 or just put any number on it. And um, so you need $300,000. You need $100,000. Your house is worth $300,000. So you go to the bank and say, look, I need some money. And I'm willing to take out a loan and, and you can put a claim on my house for $300,000 if you just lend me $100,000. So I need the money now. And I'll pay you back. If I don't pay you back, well, I lose the house. It's a bad deal, but you're going for it anyway. That most people don't realize that's the kind of an arrangement they're going into. So you you get a hundred thousand dollars in money that's made up out of thin air, but it's not quite that bad because it does have something now behind it. It's got your house behind it. it may mm. not have gold or silver coin mm. behind it, but it has your house. So you are really lending the money to yourself. But uh, the bank is performing a service by converting the process into dollars or whatever the unit is called that people will accept. Say, oh, this dollar was issued by the third bank of Toledo. Oh, that's a good bank. I've, they keep their promises. I'll accept it. Oh, this this bill over here is issued by the, the fourth bank of Toledo. Oh, they're a junkie outfit. They they steal money from their depositors. We don't want it. So as long as everything is transparent and companies were required to do business like any other company, and the banks are required to do business on an honesty level that other companies are required, I'm all for it. I think the banks could provide a good service, such as turning your house into a temporary cash flow for some business venture, whatever you wanted to use it for, and um, and putting up their good faith and their their reputation to back up that loan so that if um, if you should fail to deliver, they'll make good on it or something like that. Banks can perform a very valuable monetary service if they're required to be honest, like all other businesses. And you know what? It comes back to something very medical um, about what you're talking about, the transparency and honesty. If people actually knew what was behind for example, the currency, what it was backed up by and how the banking worked, it comes back to informed consent. You know, you have to inform mm -hmm. the public exactly. and they need to consent to it. And I'm a doctor and I know about informed consent, but it's funny, I never really thought about banking and the finance system involving informed consent as well, but it really does. <laughs> never, I just it really thought does, about it. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. so, but... What about where we are now, though? Because reading your book and looking at the world around me, and I came to some of these conclusions before even looking at your book, I feel like so many of the wars that we've seen have actually just been engineered. They're, they're money-making exercises. And a lot of the governments and politicians seem to be puppets. They don't seem to be representatives of the public or the people. They don't seem to be doing what's right in, in the interest of their uh, population are the banks now just too powerful are they i mean it just seems like so much wealth is concentrated in such few hands 
how do we dethrone them? How do we take away that power from them? They can print cash and throw around what is literally just pocket change to them and buy politicians and presidents. What, what is the solution? How do we get out of this? mess well that's the $64,000 question because it's never been done uh, and it's a good question because it seems almost hopeless but my attitude is that it has to be done and therefore it shall be done we just have to figure out how to do it I do know even though I don't know how all the steps will play out I do know that the first step is to make the facts known to that 15% of the population. Mm. Without that knowledge base, it's going to be impossible. But if 15% of the population understand what we're talking about, mm. they will be motivated. <clears throat> they will have fire in their bellies. And we will, we will find a way. It'll be done, I hope, through the political process. It still functions if we can ever recapture honest voting. Now we have another problem there because they they're rigging the machines and they're and they're stuffing the ballot boxes like crazy here in the states. Mm. We haven't had an, a fair, honest election in a long, long time. It's all rigged, and people know it, but they don't want to talk about it because they don't think there's anything they can do about it. So they'd rather ignore it. They get cheated out of one election, and they say, "Well, the next election will come back strong," but they don't want to address the issue of rigged elections and fraud in the. But the Ed, box. but aren't but aren't the politicians going to be solved? But aren't the politicians all bought from both sides? You have this illusion of choice. Haven't they already considered? Well, yes. You 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 buy out the opposition as well. You you make people think that they're kicking out the rabble when actually you're just voting in the same same same. Very observant uh, comment there. Yeah, because. I believe that our opponent's strongest weapon is controlled opposition. Mm. They want conflict. They want people, they want us to think that we're participating in some kind of a great tug of war between the good and the bad. And so they have to get, allow us to have that sensation of struggling for truth and honesty and fairness and all that. And so they, they know that we want leaders. They provide them for us. They provide, in many cases, the people that we follow because they know what to say. And they do some good things, actually. They have to do that in order mm. to be credible. And But they're always deep down and from the beginning, they're, they're obedient to their masters. And their mission is to put up a good fight, but to lose. So. That's another that, that that deepens the the problem considerably because in order for us to do what we want to do we have to be aware of this tactic and the average person on the street doesn't want to hear this no because they have their heroes they have yes. their heroes and the idea that these people who are offered to us as our heroes may not be what they appear to be is is a horrible thought it's we we just don't want to contemplate that even. We don't so want to talk do we, about it. How do we counter that? Because sometimes when I say to people, oh, I don't know about this person and we shouldn't have these false messiahs and we shouldn't have these idols and we need to save ourselves and 
Stop looking to other people to save us. And I'm not sure about this one. Some people get really angry. How dare you question this person? This person is going to save us. They're amazing. They're wonderful. Mm. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, people really want that savior. How do we snap mm. them out of that? Well, we have to educate them. Uh, I've created an organization, a couple of them, but the it won't go into that. Freedom Force International is the name of the of the central organization. We have some outshoots of it called Red Pill Projects. Uh, but a Red Pill Expo. We have Red Pill University, and we're we're forming uh, Red Pill campuses now in all of the local provinces and communities, local communities, because we need boots on the ground, and uh, we have to educate them on this principle. Because everywhere you look. Uh, you have people pretending to be on your side when they're not. In mm. the U.S., we've got the Republican and the Democrat Party, of course. Mm. And the Democrat Party is is horrible. <laughs> Everybody, even the Democrats recognize it's horrible. <laughs> and uh, and so they make the Republicans look good by comparison. So, well, the Republicans are the solution. But within the Republican Party, when you look at the top, the, the key people for a lot of them are what we call um, rhinos. Call them, uh, the, rhinos. Yeah, rhinos. Yeah, you can right the Republicans in name only. Yeah, they'll they'll talk about the Constitution and and conservative principles and liberty and all that. But when yeah. it comes to voting, uh, the, the, when the chips are on the table. They always vote the wrong way. Yeah. So yeah, that's what we're up against. And um, so the first step is to become aware of that, and that the solution. To that, I believe, is that you cannot listen to what politicians say. You're stupid if you believe anything that a politician says. And I say that not to hurt anybody's feelings, but when you realize how much corruption there is in politics, how universal it is, for someone to say, I have faith in this person, is a stupid position to take i think of i the, agree uh, that famous uh, the famous letter that uh, thomas jefferson wrote to a doctor friend of his shortly after the constitution was ratified and the doctor asked the question mr jefferson now that we have the new constitution in place in this new government he used the word government instead of protectorate but anyway well here we go now that we have this in place um how do we make sure that only good men hold political office? Mm. And Jefferson's response was a classic. It was just on the edge of irate. He said, let us not speak of good men in office. Let us rather bind men down with the chains of the Constitution. Love it. And now in the modern vernacular, what he was saying is, good men holding public office? Are you kidding? <laughs> Look around you, brother. The, that's, this is where the scoundrels go. Big governments, big institutions where there's lots of power and money are magnets to the criminal class, to the predator class. Every mm. crook and their nephew are just can hardly wait to get into government positions. Every, every, uh, Con artists in the world wants to be in office because this is where their, their this is where their their talent really is appreciated, 
I'm, it's stupid. I've never met a con artist. I've never met a con artist that I didn't trust. Have you? If they, if you didn't trust them, they're not a good con artist. They're not successful. So when people realize this, and they realize it everywhere else, but not in politics, because it's so critical that we have honest people in politics. That the idea that if we if we're being lied to in politics, brother, we're in serious trouble. Well, that is true. Yeah. So what do we do about it? I mentioned the organization I mentioned uh, I created before because one of the dictums that we have for our operation is do not trust leadership, mm. including our own leadership. We ask people who come into our organization not to trust us as leaders. Don't trust anybody because that's not realistic. When you're dealing mm. with your life and your liberty, there are very few people that cannot be compromised or intimidated. Mm in some way, to betray their principles, even if mm. it's to protect a loved one or something like that. Mm. You know, who wouldn't yeah. lie or betray their principles to protect their wife or their children or their husband from being murdered? And they know it's going to be murdered or tortured. You know, how many people could resist a, a cushy job in a nice law firm for half a million or a million dollars a year. All they got to do is play golf and show up once a month and collect their paychecks. Who wouldn't? Well, maybe it's time for me to retire. I've done my part, you know. Mm. But the young people do it now. Mm. We have to be realistic to this. This happens all the time. Mm. So, no, the solution, the solution to that, in my view, is that once people are aware of this, not only as a possibility, but as a probability, now we start looking at candidates for office in an entirely different way. We don't listen to what they say. We look at their record and see what they have done mm. and forget their words today. Look at their record. Where do they come from? Absolutely. What's the background? What have they done? Yeah. Now we've got it. Damn nobody right. does that. No. Do you know, okay. there are all these, it's, there it's are all these. It's not an insolvable problem. There are all these leaders, and, 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 and please follow on, but there's all these leaders, all these young leaders, Macron, Trudeau, Rishi Sunak. Mm. What the hell have they done? What have they done? And they're running a country. And you're like, what? <laughs> what, a, what good, noble quality do they have? What, what in their well, character? That, well, they're all graduates of the World Economic Forum anyway. And that tells you everything you need to know, because we know what the World Economic Forum advocates, world governance, collectivism, <clears throat> power from the top down, obey your leaders, become a slave. That, that's what they teach. So anybody that's a graduate of this institution, you don't really need very much more. You know, I had a conversation with Joel Smalley. I need to mention today he said the major problem we're facing is collectivism. And this is the root. We need to get rid of this. And you mentioned that word. We need to get rid of that. Anyway, you were going to carry on talking before I interrupted. You're talking about how the mechanisms, how we, we beat back the system. Yes. Excuse me. Well, I'm, I'm looking for something I want to show you. That's mm -hmm. why I'm moving away here. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. 
Ah, uh, rats. You can edit this out, I hope. I can edit it. I'm wondering whether to edit it or not. Oh, good. I... Well, I'm embarrassed. I've created a booklet called The Chasm. And, uh, oh, here it is. Here's right on. Here it is. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't know if anybody can see this, but. Uh, the Chasm, Collectivism versus Individualism, the issue behind all issues. Joel Smalley, look at that, buddy. Look at that. Wait, you need to hold on one second. I'm going to take a picture of that. I'm gonna... I can see that. Just let me take a quick picture see, as well. Are you seeing it straight or is it backwards? On my, no, on my se- screen, it's backwards. I'm seeing it straight. Oh, okay, good. I'm seeing it straight. Okay, it looks great. Well, what this is, is um, it's a peak, sneak, peep, uh, <laughs> sneak preview into the main theme of my next book. I've been working on this for quite a while, and I decided that the the gem of it is this issue of collectivism versus individualism. I don't want to wait till the book is finished. So I brought (laughs) it all together, and there are some parts that are still under development, but I put it together. And um, to me, this is the issue that once people clearly understand that all these words like like socialism, communism, fascism, Nazism, all these words are just garbage. They're just they mean nothing. We're talking mm. about collectivism versus individualism. Mm. That once they get that straight, they'll be able to evaluate their candidates a lot better, too. So anyway, uh, if anybody wants a free copy of this, a downloaded copy, you can get it just by. Uh, let's see. It's chasm dot chasm spelled C-H-A-S-M chasm dot reality dot com. And. Uh, Give us your email, and we'll put you on our me- our email list and let you know about all the things we're doing here. But also, you can download this free, and you can print it yourself if you wish, or read it online. Okay, definitely that. I'll, I'll this, I'll I think put, is the is the core of our of our issue. It is the core of our issue. So how how do we how do we get rid of the bankers? How do we make sure that? We, we were able to install a republic and have proper representatives. Can you, can you please write a new constitution? <laughs> I mean, I'm very libertarian. I love Ron Paul. I love the idea of a very, very small state. I subscribe to leave me the frack alone kind of philosophy. <laughs> just, just leave me yeah. alone. Yeah. <laughs> First, do no harm. And two, take no shit and leave me the frack alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You know, if, if we had um, an understanding, a wide understanding of the issues we're talking about, all of these things would come to pass. Because if we honestly believe that the state is justified in using coercion only for the defense of life and liberty, if we really believe that, and we write a constitution that says that in no uncertain terms and can be enforced and all that, then you talk about a small state. Yeah, it would be very, very small because it can't do anything else except <laughs> to defend life and liberty, which is an mm. important issue. That's the only thing we need the state for, really. The rest we can handle quite well ourselves. Thank you. Mm. So how do we do that? We have to replace the political scum. 
that's running the show today. Amen. I don't know how to say it. I, maybe I could think of a stronger word than scum, but uh, that's strong enough for the message. See you next we Tuesday. We are too loaded. We're too loaded at the highest levels of authority. We're too loaded with criminals, with uh, con artists, with the predator class. They mm. seek public office because they can commit major crimes and be rewarded for it and revered for it. Because mm. they'll do it in the name of protecting the people. Mm. So once we've done that and we replace the scum with mm. people who understand what the real function of the state should be, mm. all of these things will happen. And unless we do that, none of these things will happen. So that's our mission. And that's what this Red Pill University and Red Pill campuses is all about, is how to begin that process of replacing the collectivists who are now running the show at all levels of state authority. We start at the ground level at home localities in our hometown. We start with the county board of supervisors, the board of education, the sheriff's office and things like that and move up. We don't start from the top and move down. You can't do that. People say, oh, if we just get the right person elected as president or something. Mm. No, 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 no. One person. Is not gonna, you need to build a foundation at the grassroots level and build up, not from the top down. I've just... I've just got a few more questions. I know your time is precious and people are trying to get food to you. I just want to ask you two, two last questions. The first one is people listening right now, what, what can you give some like three or four tangible steps they can take in their lives to protect them and improve their lot? Bearing in mind the game is rigged. Yeah, that should be easy. It's easy to think of things you can do to defend your your liberty and your life. But that's, those are defensive or negative measures. I'd like to preface by saying none of them will work unless we have the, the positive vision of replacing the, the bad leadership that we have, because none, it might be a short-term effect, but it won't be the long-term effect. So having mm. said that, yeah. The old, old idea of getting out of debt, let's start with that. If you have mm. debt for for convenience, debt for pleasure, debt for you know a, a nicer car or something that you can get along without, or a debt for, for going to uh, take a trip around the world, if you can get out of debt, the only reason I would go into debt is if I had a venture that I thought could make money so I could have more pros more resources left at the end of it to to carry on the educational battle, to get this information distributed and so forth. Mm. So um, getting out of debt is one thing. Getting um, getting yourself involved in a small community of people who are like-minded individuals who know what's going on. Because the day is coming soon when things are going to be pretty hectic in our society, I'm afraid. And we're going to need the support of people. It's, uh, it's no longer tolerable not to know your neighbors. Mm. You have to know your neighbors and uh, hopefully um, you find neighbors who think as you do. Make sure you have access to food and, and water. What happens if the, if the electricity goes out and the water pumps stop working and the water doesn't come out of your pipe mm. or 
the gas pumps are not working and you you can't drive a car because there's no gasoline or maybe you need a coupon to buy your gasoline or something and you're not qualified to do that you have to think think in terms of defense and so food and stockpile of necessary uh things like water medicine being among friends who can help in times of emergency these are the best things i can think of now does it help to have um, money stashed away probably if we knew what money would be good under such conditions that lie ahead but it's possible that um the us dollar or the uh, british pound will have practically no real exchange value in times of total collapse probably gold and silver coins would have more value but you can't eat those so if you're if you are out of food and you got silver coins you give a lot of silver coins for a loaf of bread mm. so those are all in other words what i'm trying to say <clears throat> is that there are things that can be done and should be done mm. um but they won't they won't really work in the long run unless we salvage the system so mm. whatever we do to prepare for the bad days ahead it better have at the top of the list what do we do to educate our fellow citizens as to what's going on and to try and get them recruited into our movement to do something about it if we don't do that we're just wasting our resources i i i think you just gave some amazing advice i'm really fortunate where i am i'm in buckinghamshire just outside london i'm in the countryside and there's a local community that's been forged around this amazing woman i need to mention her name nat bradbury and she's created this buying group local community buying group where we go out directly to the farmers and the growers and get food from them and bypass the supermarkets and there's a, a network a community Excellent. that that we've yeah. created and i think more people need to do that mm -hmm. Um, the last question, Ed. You don't know this, but everybody, I ask this question, I, and and it's even more relevant because of you. I believe you're in your nineties, and you are one sharp cookie. You look fit. You got the sparkle in your eye. Trust me, as a doctor, I see a lot of people, and a lot of people, I double take. It says that they're fifty, and they look like they're eighty. You know, a lot of people are physiologically a lot older than their chronological age. You are the opposite. You look amazing and you are clearly very healthy. And I'm so glad because the world needs more people like you. It needs Ed. Now, the question I ask my guests at the end of the show is, if you imagine yourself living to 130, a great life, and you're surrounded by your family, your great-grandchildren, all of this before you pass away to meet your maker what words of wisdom and advice health or otherwise would you give to your family i thought about that uh, obviously when you get to be 92 as i am you think about meeting your maker is like the the train is coming into the station and it's slowing down right <laughs> you're getting really close <laughs> so um to me it's pretty clear i would i would start by saying first question authority second respect nature mm. and third follow your conscience at all costs that's about it amazing ed 
I knew I was going to have a once in a lifetime conversation and I did. You delivered and so much more. I am so grateful. I feel so blessed that I've been able to meet you virtually <laughs> and that I will be able to share this um, with several thousands of my followers. And I just want to say thank you so, so much. I wish I could give you a hug. Um, well, I'm, well, I'm giving you well, one thank virtually. You. I, I, accept, <laughs> I, I accept that gratefully. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. And uh, as you probably have guessed, I, and I really am glad to be able to do this. Uh, I shouldn't do this as much as I do because I have a lot of projects on my desk that are getting dusty. But um, give me a chance to talk about these issues and I'm there. I'm ready to go. So now it's your job to carry the message forward and maybe we can form a Red Pill University campus out where you are. How does that sound? Love it. Love it. Seriously. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. So let's work on it. Let's Everyone, work on it. You heard it here, okay? You heard it here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And um, God bless. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Ed, thank you so much. I'm, I'll be in touch. Mm-hmm.